The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 9, Chapters 1 through 3. Prior to Esmeralda's rescue by his adopted son, Claude Frollo had fled Notre Dame in a bewildered state, pale, haggard, blind, and fierce. He runs away from the Place de Greve haphazardly, and only when he has run so far that he can no longer see the towers of Paris does it seem he can breathe again. He is haunted by frightful thoughts. He peers into his own soul and shudders at the sight. But lest we mistake his horror with remorse, Hugo tells us that he thinks of the, quote, girl who had destroyed him, unquote that he blames fate for their terrible destinies, and that he indulges in evil thoughts with satanic laughter. Searching his soul, he discovers that love in his priestly heart had turned to hatred and malice, and had transfigured him into a demon. His fatal passion had led her to the gallows and him to hell. And he laughs bitterly at the thought that Phoebus still lives, light-hearted, content, and in the arms of a new sweetheart. He writhes with jealous rage at the thought of the mob gazing with foul eyes upon the half-naked figure of the lovely, modest, virginal girl he loved. His heart melts with tenderness and despair when he imagines the bliss which he might have found on earth if Esmeralda had loved him. But he regrets nothing for he prefers to see her in the hangman's hands rather than in the captain's arms. He laughs devilishly as he imagines the heedless, happy, dancing gypsy girl he had first seen, and then the broken girl he had last seen, in her shift, with the rope around her neck, approaching the gallows. Crushed by despair, he considers the scene around him, and the very physical world seems distorted by the state of his soul. He is haunted by visions of a colossal black obelisk piercing the sky, of shrieks and groans arising from a vast furnace, of the skeletons of the gibbet of Montfaucon knocking together in the darkness. His despair seems so deep, and his hold on reality so tenuous, that Hugo is compelled to acknowledge explicitly that it is indeed remarkable Claude Frollo did not commit suicide. Passing by the lighted room of La Falordelle, Claude Frollo sees the old woman spinning and singing, and sees his own brother laughing and caressing a gaudily dressed girl. How innocent Jeanne's impurity seems in the shadow of his brother's crimes. Arriving at Notre Dame, Frollo finds it dark and silent as the tomb. Looking at the arches around the choir, he imagines he sees a circle of ashen faces gazing upon him. Fleeing through the church, the whole cathedral seems to become a prodigious elephant pawing at the ground. And when he seeks comfort in the public breviary, the words that greet him only compound his terror. It is from the book of Job, quote, Then a spirit passed before my face, the hair on my flesh stood up, unquote. It occurs to him to seek refuge in the tower with his beloved Quasimodo, and he makes his way up the stairs. 
as the clock strikes midnight, he thinks to himself that Esmeralda must be cold already. At that moment, a blast of wind extinguishes his candle, and he sees at the opposite corner of the tower the figure of a woman in white, with a little goat at her side. She is pale, sad, unbound, free, dead. Fearing the specter might pursue him, he waits for her to pass, and then descends the stairs, repeating to himself the words, The spirit passed before my face. In the next chapter, Hugo explains to us that every city in the Middle Ages had its sanctuaries, where the criminal was sacred, and one such place of refuge was the room in Notre Dame where Quasimodo had deposited Esmeralda. He delivered her there, untied her ropes, and brought her a packet of clothes, a basket of provisions, and a bed. The clothes had been left at the church for her by charitable women. The food and the bed were his. When Esmeralda tries to lift her eyes to his face to thank him, she finds him so hideous she is forced to hang her head in fright. Seeing this, he tells her not to look, but only to listen, and he counsels her never to leave the church, for they would kill her, and he would die. Alone in her cell, she looks out at the smoke of a thousand family hearths and feels the misery of her own tragic loneliness. At that moment, the faithful Jolly nuzzles her hands and knees, and she covers her with kisses. Then she lets flow the tears she had held back for so long, and by nightfall she is able to appreciate the beauty of the earth, viewed from that height. The next day, Quasimodo continues his faithful, generous attendance to all of Esmeralda's needs. When he notices her aversion to looking at him, he hides himself behind the wall. If he wants to gaze at her freely, he does so when she is asleep. When she summons the courage to invite him in her room, he refuses to spare her the discomfort. He vows to learn her wishes from her expressions and the motion of her lips, and he gives her a whistle to call him with. And when she asks why he saved her, he answers, repressing his tears, that the pity she showed him on the pillory is worth more than a whole life can ever repay. Finally, he tells her that she has nothing to fear. Notre Dame has very tall towers, and a man who fell from them would be dead before he hit the pavement. If it would ever please her to have him fall, she need not even say a word. One glance from her is all it would take. The second of my posts was called Two Hearts Differently Constituted. Claude Frollo and Quasimodo share a love for Esmeralda, but when it comes to the reasons why they love her, or the manner in which they express it, or the way they bear her rejection, they have absolutely nothing in common. Their hearts are definitely differently constituted. Recall Quasimodo's tender reaction to seeing Esmeralda vulnerable and half-naked, clothed in nothing but her shift. Quote, Quasimodo appeared to feel something of her shame. He covered his eye with his broad hand and again departed, but with lingering steps. Unquote. 
and Claude Frollo's. Quote, the archdeacon approached her slowly. Even in this extremity, she saw him gaze upon her nakedness with eyes glittering with passion, jealousy, and desire. Unquote. Consider Quasimodo's self-depriving generosity, the ways in which he places Esmeralda's every comfort over and above his own. Quote, he carried a basket under one arm and a mattress under the other. In the basket were a bottle, a loaf of bread, and a few other provisions. He set the basket down and said, Eat. He spread the mattress on the floor and said, Sleep. It was his own food, his own bed, which the bell-ringer had brought. Unquote. As against Claude Frollo's pitiless efforts to spare himself discomfort, even if it means making Esmeralda suffer. Quote, Accordingly, I denounced you. It was then that I terrified you when we met. The plot which I was contriving against you, the storm which I was about to bring upon your head, burst from me in threats and lightning flashes. Unquote. Contrast Quasimodo's gentle and generous response to Esmeralda when she is alarmed by his presence and repulsed by his face. Quote, Don't be frightened. I am your friend. I came to see if you were asleep. It does you no harm, does it, if I look at you when you are asleep? Unquote. With that of Claude Frollo when she shrinks from his touch. Quote, the priest dragged himself towards her on his knees. I entreat you, he cried. If you have any feeling, do not repulse me. Oh, I love you. I am a miserable wretch. Unquote. Recall the moment when Esmeralda called Quasimodo back after he went humbly away to spare her the discomfort of looking upon him. Quote, when he felt her touch, Quasimodo trembled in every limb. He raised his beseeching eye, and finding that she drew him towards her, his whole face beamed with tenderness and delight. Unquote. As against Claude Frollo's violent imposition of himself on her. Quote, he seized her by the arm. He was frantic. He strove to drag her away. Unquote. Consider the noble hearted reasons for Quasimodo's love for her who showed compassion when the whole world mocked and scorned him. Quote, you ask me why I saved you. You have forgotten a villain who tried to carry you off one night, a villain to whom the very next day you brought relief upon their infamous pillory. A drop of water and a little pity are more than my whole life can ever repay. You have forgotten that villain, but he remembers. Unquote. As against Claude Frollo's violently repressed and lustful impulses, for which he blames forces beyond his control. Quote, oh, how resplendent was that form which stood out like something luminous, even in the very light of the sun itself. Alas, girl, it was you. Surprised, intoxicated, charmed, I suffered myself to gaze. I gazed so long that all at once I shuddered with terror. I felt that fate had overtaken me. Unquote. And finally, consider the utter willingness of one of these men 
to give his life for Esmeralda. Quote, Listen, he resumed, when he no longer feared lest that tear should flow. We have very tall towers here. A man who fell from them would be dead long before he touched the pavement. Whenever it would please you to have me fall, you need not even say a single word. One glance will be enough. Unquote. And the readiness of the other to sacrifice her life to his own. Quote, will you be mine? I can save you even yet. She gazed steadily at him. Be gone, demon, or I will denounce you. So be it. Die yourself, he muttered. Unquote. For those of you who have read 93, I think the beautiful heart of Quasimodo is the beautiful heart of that novel. More on that later. The third of my posts was a poetry connection. To Love and Death by Lord Byron. In connection with Quasimodo's devoted and unrequited love, and his acceptance that it must be that way, I thought of this poem by Lord Byron. The depth of the devotion wrenches my heart. The last line kills me. I watched thee when the foe was at our side, ready to strike at him, or thee and me were safety hopeless. Rather than divide aught with one loved, save love and liberty. I watched thee on the breakers, when the rock received our prow, and all was storm and fear, and bade thee cling to me through every shock. This arm would be thy bark, or breast thy beer. I watched thee when the fever glazed thine eyes, yielding my couch, and stretched me on the ground when overworn with watching, ne'er to rise from thence if thou an early grave hadst found. The earthquake came and rocked the quivering wall, and men and nature reeled as if with wine. Whom did I seek around the tottering hall? For thee, whose safety first provide for? Thine. And when convulsive throes denied my breath the faintest utterance to my fading thought, to thee, to thee, even in the gasp of death, my spirit turned, oh, oftener than it ought. Thus much and more, and yet thou lovest me not, and never wilt. Love dwells not in our will nor can I blame thee, though it be my lot to strongly, wrongly, vainly love thee still. <laughs>